Good morning. This morning, I am going to preach from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. Now, while you're flipping there, I, I just have to say a word of exhortation to all of you. I, you all came in here this morning, and you saw that the youth pastor was wearing a tie, and you didn't head back out and call it a day. It's, it's impressive. When you know the youth pastor's preaching, you stuck around. So I just want to say thank you uh, for sticking with us. No, I, I know no one here would do that. In fact, everyone... Um, has been nothing but encouraging. I believe this is about my third time preaching here, so uh, it is always exciting um, to get to bring the word here. So Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 28. If you are able, I invite you to stand for the read, out of reverence for the reading of God's word. Now we know that the flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Hear the reading of the word of our God starting in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time of worship. We ask that through your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate the words that were just read, and that you may reveal to us what your will and desire for our life may be. Speak, Father, for your servants are listening. Amen. So, I was about eight years old, and my parents were actually sitting right here. Dave and Becky Jordaner came to hear me preach this morning, so that's very exciting. But when I was about eight years old, uh, my parents told me that some very important news. They were going to take me and my two siblings, my brother and sister, uh, to the most magical place in the world. We're going to Disney World. It was a wonderful time. We had the best time, and honestly... Around that age of eight years old, it was one of the first trips that really made an impact on me. Um, it was a time when I got to ride Splash Mountain 30 times with my dad and got to try some new food and have this big hotel room and a cool pool, and it just kind of stuck out in my mind. It's interesting, these, these trips, as, uh, these memories as children, even the littlest details stick out. I remember that we drove there in uh, a large suburban and we didn't leave, we, what was interesting, we laid the seats down. It was one of those that you could tuck the seats away. It was just flat all the way back. And we made like a pallet and put a bunch of blankets and comforters and in there. And I checked, the, 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 I believe that's illegal, but the statute of limitations ha does apply, so they're okay. Maybe no, there was maybe no seat belts. Maybe we had a seat belt, I don't know. But we just made a pallet, me and my siblings got to lay down for the nine-hour drive, got to sleep. But the thing that was really cool is we had an old TV that had a VHS player built right in. Kids, I'm sorry, it's like a DVD. I'm sorry, it's like Netflix, but it, it comes in a brick. <laughs> so this old VHS player built right in, and you know, it was one of the biggest screens I'd seen. It was about that big. You watch movies on it. It was wonderful. And I remember... At that, that time, 
I don't know why, my favorite movie was The Sword and the Stone. Anybody familiar with that movie? It's the Disney movie. Yeah, it's about King Arthur when he's a little kid. He has his friend Merlin. They do wacky things, and he pulls the sword from the stone and becomes king of England. And that was my favorite movie at that time. I don't know why. Um, it's kind of a kiddie movie. I've grown up since then. My favorite movie is now Tarzan because that's a much better movie. Um, but I remember fighting with my siblings because I wanted to watch it on repeat. And so it would be like Sword in the Stone, my sister's movie, my brother's movie, Sword in the Stone, sister's movie, Sword in the Stone. I was like always wanting to bring it back up. And I was thinking about this this morning, especially as I was dwelling on this passage, is one reason I loved that movie is I loved this story of the kid who has big dreams and desires and, and seeks to make a name for himself, but he's, he's young and small and, and all these things, and at the end of the movie, he has a chance to prove his worth. And this one simple act of or simple act of him taking the sword and drawing it from the stone proves that he is worthy to be king of England. And that's so grand in my mind. And as I thought about it, I believe it's not just me. I, I may be speaking out of turn for you here, but I believe we all love these stories. I mean, if you look at a lot of the movies we watch and, and stories we read have this narrative. I mean, one of the most if, uh, if compelling to me is the story uh, or the uh, the figure of Thor, the god of thunder. You know, and not not only does he have this worthy. I don't know if you're familiar. He he can only use his powers when he, he's worthy to wield his hammer. Sorry, I'm getting a little nerdy on y'all with my Marvel facts, but he's based on a, uh, a mythology from Norse Norse mythology hundreds of years ago. So that story of him proving his worth has transcended all this time now up to. Marvel movies that you see in every day, all, the, all 50 of them that we get to watch in the theaters. This story of proving our worth is compelling. And I believe that is what Paul is urging of the Philippians. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy. Let your life be worthy. Now, we don't have a sword to pull out of a stone we don't have a hammer to wield and so i'm was kind of or, or perplexed by this question and this command that we see in scripture here and i want to pose that question to you all maybe we can uh, attack it together what does it mean to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of jesus christ of all the things to live up to that is one of the biggest the gospel of Jesus Christ, to live worthy of this gospel. I believe that we find in here three characteristics of a life that is worthy of the gospel. Three characteristics of a, word, a life that is worthy of the gospel. So first of all, I want to point out that a life that is worthy of the gospel is devoted to the gospel. A life that is worthy of the gospel is devoted to the gospel. Paul begins um, his, this, this charge with the, the word, if you have the ESV that I just read right now, with the word only. Some of you might have a translation that says above all else, or one thing, or um, it's, it's an emphatic word in the Greek that symbolize, or, or expresses this idea of above all else, Barring anything else, just if we boil it down to just one thing, this is what I want. 
Now remember, Paul is writing to the Philippians in a jail cell. He has lived a, a long ministry, and he is now sitting in a jail cell uh, writing to them. And he urges them before. He's saying, you know, one of the most famous passages are, are verses in Philippians where he says uh, just a few uh, lines above, to live, my, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's, he's telling them, I, I'm having very difficult go here, and I don't know if I'm going to make it out of this or not. I don't know if I'm going to survive. I don't know if I'm going to be set free. I don't know if I'm going to spend the rest of my life in this jail. He says, but I know that I'm doing all of this for you. Because he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, I'm going to continue to live for Christ for you because I know it is for your good. You can find this in verses uh, 19 through 26. He says that I'm going to continue to work because I know it's better for you, Philippians. But one thing. I'm asking you one thing. It all comes down to this. Live a life worthy of the gospel. So I believe at this point we have to kind of ask the the question, uh, what exactly is the gospel he's asking us to live for? What is this gospel? Now, the word gospel in Greek actually means good news. So when we say the word gospel, we're talking about good news. What is the good news? The good news is that we are born and live sinners. We have no righteousness of our own. Scripture tells us that we are, uh, all, no one has lived a righteous life. We are all sinners. There's no, no one who is perfect. No, not one. But Christ loved us so much that he came, died on the cross for our sins, lived the life we couldn't live, died the death that we deserved, rose three days later, and now he gives to us forgiveness, mercy, and eternal life with uh, the Father, and that is the good news of the gospel. So what does it mean to live worthy of that? If it's so important to Paul that we are devoted to this, what does it mean to live worthy of that? Does that mean, is Paul telling the Philippians, be sure not to mess this up, Philippians. You receive this good news, so don't mess up. Don't don't, uh, forget it, don't don't lose, because you might lose it. You have to, like we were saying with, with Thor's hammer, if you, if you, can you lose your worthiness and no longer wield this gospel? And I believe Paul is saying the complete opposite here. In fact, I would argue that that's not good news, that you could even call that the gospel, because if we have to live worthy in the sense of our worth earning our salvation, that's not good news. That is burdensome. That is tiring. That is impossible. Because the whole point is that we are not worthy of the gospel. We, we in no way can earn, the worth, or earn worth to receive the gospel. In fact, the fact that what makes it good news is that we aren't worthy and we receive it anyway. So our worthiness does not gain us the gospel, but because we have the gospel, we then live worthy in devotion to him in response. The fact that God brought us into his family, gave us this gospel, now requires the response, and I believe there is no other response but to embrace with total devotion the gospel of Christ and embrace Christ. Let me put it this way, and this is the best way I can understand it, because I 
This is an experience from my life. When I was in college, and I realized my parents are sitting here now because this might not be good, um, but I had a midterm coming up, and it was French Revolution. And I'm a history major, so I was all into history, so I was studying, and somehow I dropped the ball. I got in that test. I knew nothing. I'm telling you all, nothing, not a single question. I did very, very bad. And I got the test back the next couple of weeks, and I had a beat. I was like, sweet, I'm a lot smarter than I thought I was. Man, look at look how great I am. I really earned this B. Look at that. And then as I was leaving class, my teacher, Dr. Kruckberg, we called him, called him Kruck, he called me into his office, and he said, Cole, what happened in that midterm? I was like, I don't know, but apparently I did pretty good. He went, no, you didn't. He said, Cole, you failed that test. You completely failed it. Zero. I was like, oh, well then why did I get a B? He said, Cole, I've seen your work. I've had you in other classes. This, is, this, isn't, your, this isn't your best work. So I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to give you this B so that when you take the final, you can pass this class. He said, because I know you can pass this class. But if I give you an F now, it was only a midterm and a final. He said, if you fail this midterm, you can't pass this class. And so what I did was I studied from that moment the final for that final. I was the best student he had all of a sudden I studied so hard where I was kind of lackadaisical about the midterm I had other classes to go about do I had other things by my time when I found out he had given me that grace and had given me this opportunity I, it changed the way I reacted how could I not how could I act any differently when I've been received this grace that's why Paul is telling the disciple or the Philippians that this is so important that it boils down to one thing don't forget the gospel that has been given to you don't forget the grace because when we really sit and dwell and think about the grace that jesus has given us we think about this good news how could we live any other way again don't hear me say that this means we now live perfect and wonderful and everything's great no, we, we, we're going to mess up, but that doesn't mean we lose anything. We don't have to fear any loss. In fact, we can live in the gratitude of our, of our gain. That's why Paul urges us to embrace the total devotion to the gospel. This one thing, it all comes down to this. Because how could we live anywhere else, any way else? So we see that we must live a life that is devoted to the gospel, because how could we not? But the other aspect and characteristic of a life that is worthy of the gospel is that it is a life that is lived for the gospel. You have a life that is lived in devotion to the gospel, and then a life that is lived for the gospel. Paul, uh, so let me say this. One way we can go about this idea of constantly reminding ourselves of the grace and, and, do, and just sitting in devotion of what we've received from God. There's a couple ways we can go about it. One, pull out your phone, get on Zillow, look up, uh, you know, maybe a Tudor mansion or an old abandoned monastery, or maybe a castle, buy it, go live in it, sit in it, and just think and sit in quiet and just sit there and be like, God loves me so much, I'm so happy. That's, you can do that. I don't recommend it. The housing market's not very good. You're probably going to spend a lot more than that castle's worth to do that. So, and I don't think Paul's... <laughs> encouraging us to do that either that wouldn't be very profitable for the gospel or for our us in fact paul gives the philippians and us 
some pretty clear instructions on how we can live for the gospel. He's asking them to do this one thing, and here's how to do it. He says, he wants to live a life worthy so that I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Pastors, we love three, so we got three things here. Stand firm, strive, and be fearless. See, Paul is not just giving us a call or the Philippians, a call to change their mindset or just their beliefs. That's part of it. But he's not giving them just a call to change their mindset or belief, but, a cha- to, but to change their conduct as well. If your mindset is changed, your beliefs are changed, what as a natural, under, a natural uh, following is that our conduct changes as well. So he gives them an outline. He first tells them to stand firm, to be unyielding. It's, it's a defensive language. Stand firm. Don't be toppled by anything. There's an old quote that says, if you don't stand for anything, or if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. So Paul's ur- urging them, stand firm for the gospel. Your beliefs and what you know is rooted in that. So when things come against your beliefs, when things cause you to question you can stand on the rock of our salvation he also tells us to strive this is if stand firm is the defense this is the the offense to strive forward is active moving and working towards the a goal it's kind of like a shark you know sharks gotta swim forward y'all ever heard that sharks if sharks got constantly gotta swim forward or else they'll drown i think that's true i heard it from a, another pastor so i don't fact check me. <laughs> so, I heard it in a sermon, so it works. Either way, it has a good picture. Sharks have to keep moving forward. They have to stay active. We are the same way. Paul is urging the believers in the same way to be active, to strive forward for the gospel. And then he says, be fearless. Don't let anything cause you to have fear. Now, I don't think Paul is literally saying here, never have, feel the feeling of fear. I think that's actually a good thing we should have fear but i believe it's actually to uh, the idea of working and moving and striving and standing firm this not in the absence of fear but despite any presence of fear i always think of the quote from atticus finch and kill a mockingbird courage is not a man with a knife in his hand but knowing you've, you've been beaten a hundred years before you begin but you begin anyway because it's the right thing to do it's doing something you know that even if you feel like you're facing all odds and there's no way it can come out right, you do it anyway because it's the right thing to do. Now, some of you are more type A. You like the instructions. You're ready to go. You kind of like my wife, Alicia, here. She likes, to, she likes a chore list and she likes to tackle it and get it done. And you're, you're sitting there right now. You might even be on Amazon looking up super, super soakers so you can go charge the gates of hell, right? Or you might be like me. I'm, I'm a bit more type B. I like to wait. I'm a bit more patient. Or maybe you're a type A or type B. Regardless of your personality, you might just be sitting there overwhelmed. There's a lot to do. There's a lot to stand for. Cole, you telling us that we have to do all these things to be worthy of the gospel? I have to do these radical... Does that mean I have to go sell all my things and, and move to a, for, a foreign country and be a missionary? Or I got to... I got to go to seminary now or I got to go do the biggest possible thing I can think of in my mind for God and go try and do that because if I'm afraid of it then I got to be fearless and we can sometimes get our brains can kind of run away from us 
So let me say this. This is not just a calling or a charge to live worthy in a radical way. Now he said, it is not just that. It might be. We maybe we, we go overseas, we, we go on the mission field, we, I'm a pastor, I mean, that might be your calling today. But it's not just that. It's not just for those who are going to do the most radical, unbelievable things. I believe the Lord, to live a life that is worthy of the gospel, to live a life that is for the gospel, it is just as much moving to another country as it is walking across the street to your neighbor and loving them. We, we believe that we should love our neighbor both figuratively and literally. So we, no matter what people say about, ah, oh, don't bother them, they're mean, or, oh, you know, don't, you know, that's kind of a weird thing to do to go knock on somebody's door. We don't do that anymore. We stand firm in that belief. We have to actively take time in our day to strive forward across the street and knock on the door. And it can be very nerve-wracking to talk to someone we don't know and knock on the door and tell them that, that we love them and Jesus loves them and come over for dinner. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of sticking with this illustration, but that's, that can be fearful to work despite that fear. It can be the same thing to wake up in the morning 15 minutes early to read Scripture. We know it, we should read Scripture, so we stand firm in that. We set an alarm. That is an active striving of setting that alarm a little earlier. And no matter what people say about how crazy it is we wake up that early, we are fearless in our beliefs and our actions. Standing firm, striving, living boldly for Christ. It is not a single momentarily, momentary, sky-splitting moment when the heavens appear and you know your mission. And It could be, but it's not just that. Instead, it is a reoccurring decision that we make every morning, we make daily, that produces within us a wellspring of actions and, and results for the gospel. This is what Paul is urging us to do. Now, we see that to a life that is worthy of the gospel is devoted to the gospel. It lives for the gospel. And then my final point for this morning is that a life that is, lived, or that is worthy of the gospel abides in gospel unity. Abides in gospel unity. Now, all throughout this passage, there's been hints of this idea of gospel unity, okay? We just, we just read a few. Let's, let's look back uh, at what Paul's talking about here. Uh, he says, that I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, the spirit of our Lord, in one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. He goes on to say, this is a clear sign, this, this unity, this work, what you, this, this, uh, gospel unity is, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my place. This is a clear sign to them, our opponents, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Paul's language here is just dripping with this idea of the unity of God's people. We strive side by side. We think the same. We act the same. Um, and other passages actually go even farther. Look at John 4, 20. It says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he, whom he has not seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. I'm sorry, brother, who he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. 
Scripture is very clear that our unity is a reaction and a necessary requirement of the gospel. It is not merely a byproduct, but is a symbol of its power and its efficacy. The gospel naturally will produce unity. I mean, think about it, church. It is a a miracle. Gospel unity is a miracle. I mean, one, we have teenagers here, kids in the sanctuary, in the uh, kids' ministry room. We have older generations, middle generations, young adults, early in their career, adults later in their career. We have all different types of demographics in this room, and yet we're all here together for one purpose, the gospel. Take it even further, when we were in uh, Honduras, Ellis, do you remember Ronaldo? Yeah, he's a really cool guy. Ronaldo was a great guy. I didn't really get to know him because I didn't speak Spanish and he didn't speak English. Uh, so we couldn't really talk except for a translator. Um, but he was a wonderful believer. He led uh, his church. And that's my brother in Christ. We've, neither of us has said a single word to each other that uh, we understood. <laughs> that's my brother in Christ. How does that unity make sense? How does it transcend uh, distance and culture it's because the gospel produces radical unity I had a pastor growing up they used to say this is why Jesus didn't give us a mission he gave us a co-mission because it's supposed to be co- cooperation is built right in we got to do it together so as believers we are called to live hand in hand side by side the worthy living worthy of the gospel is not a singular uh, task it is a mission for all of us to do hand in hand together we support the actions of our brothers and sisters in the faith we put aside different squabbles and different differences because we all come together under one umbrella and that is the gospel and to live worthy means to live under that umbrella with the saints so as I close this morning I want to revisit uh, that question I posed in the beginning. What does it mean to live a life that is worthy of the gospel? It can be daunting, it can be scary to think. And the truth is, I, I, I believe Paul gives us uh, some wonderful insights and some clarification, but the truth is, I can't answer that question. Not for you. I can answer the question for me. You must answer that question for yourself today. What does it mean for you to live a life worthy of the gospel? First of all, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, that's the first step. Have you heard the good news that will drastically and radically change your life? It will provide you salvation, forgiveness. Maybe we know the Lord. We just need those reminders. Not to earn more worth, not to earn more gospel, but no, no, no. To live worthy as a response to what we've already received. To live better in unity. To stand firm, strive, or live fearlessly. Whatever it may be for you this morning. Finally, you may even be looking for a church home to join in this church in unity. I'd like to invite you after we pray, as we have our time of response. This, this altar's open. I'll be standing right here in the front. But also, you... You don't have to come here to meet with the Lord. The Lord can meet with you right where you are, at home, wherever you may be.
you can come to Jesus this morning. So let me ask you again, what does it mean for you to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? After this prayer, I would like to invite you to come. Let's pray.